the, the window, window, and it, and it, um, um, and that, and, and that, blew and away, blew away the, the, uh, the, uh, the wax, the wax, off the candle, off the candle the flame off the candle. It blew onto her. Her clothes caught on fire. She ran into the other room to try to get Henry to help pull out, put out the fire, uh, and she died two days later from the, the burns that she endured. And then two years after that, Henry's son Charles was a soldier in the Union Army, um, and he was. He was fighting in the battle outside Mine Hill in Virginia, and he, he was inflicted with terrible wounds. He almost died. So Henry hurried off to Washington to see what was going on uh, and to be with his son as he suffered. It was the beginning of December, and he wrote that, that beautiful Christmas hymn. That's where it, it, he heard about it and where it started sticking with him. And one of the verses, it is sad uh, because he's looking at so many things that have happened. It's full of sadness. He writes, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now, there's a man who's looking at the devastation of the Civil War and the devastation that's happened to his own life. You know, you realize they calculated uh, the Times that was doing this little article on the uh, Civil War and on Henry Longfellow. They figured out that if the Civil War took place today, six million people uh, would die. That would be the equivalent number. What a, what a terrible thing. And yet Henry did not give up all hope to defeat and to fight against the evil. He, he last verse of that poem says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Henry obviously held on to the conviction that we can beat evil. With Christmas, we can fight, we can conquer, and we can win against evil. And God would have us hold on to the same conviction today as we look at these words from Micah chapter 5. If you've got your own Bible, I invite you to open it up and follow along with me as you take a look at Micah chapter 5, and we'll study those words. It opens with this command, marshal your troops. Marshal your troops, it says. Get to battle. Start fighting. Because ancient Jerusalem is under siege. The Assyrian army has surrounded the city, and it's time to fight. There's evil on every side. The reason the Assyrian army has gotten to Jerusalem is because they've rampaged through the entire northern region, and they've slaughtered, they've killed along the way, and now it's, it's, it's sadly turned into the, a siege against the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, you know, in the ancient world, the only way to get out of a siege, basically, was to hope that one of your allies would prove able to come and defeat your, your enemy who was sieging you. You know, the likelihood of you gaining enough strength to muster and to break out of the siege was, was very rare. You, you almost always needed somebody to come and rescue you. And so God doesn't just say, marshal your troops. You can tell the Israelites are calling out for help because here's the big problem. Maybe you heard it in the lesson. It says, Israel will be abandoned. That's the big issue. Israel is under siege and they're calling on God to rescue them. They're calling on all their allies to rescue them. And what does it say? Israel will be abandoned. Now, that didn't mean that God had ceased to exist. God still existed. He was actually working with Cyrus to, to fight against the Israelites. And, and neither did it mean that God had stopped serving and caring for people individually, forgiving them individually. Uh, God was still there for Isaiah and Jeremiah. But it did mean that on a whole, collectively, the people were on their own. 
God has abandoned them. I hate being alone. I don't know how you feel, but I am not a loner. I really struggle to sit in church and to work on things and be alone for like 25, 30 hours a week. That is hard for me. Uh, but m even more, I hate the feeling of being just alone on projects in, in life. My, my wife constantly has to assure me, you're not alone. I'm with you. We're doing this together. You know, yes, I realize I'm not writing the sermon or whatever, but I am with you. You are not alone. And, you know, maybe there is good reason for us to freak out like that, huh? Even if you are a person who likes being alone, I think you can get the sense of somebody freaking out because you feel alone because we, will, we really aren't that strong. We really aren't that capable. I mean, how well have we done in so many of our fights against evil? Uh, you, you look at our collective efforts against evil. The, the war on morality, the war on immorality, the war on poverty, the war on drugs. I realize those are, are political things, right? But those started because we cared to do those fights and we do those battles. How well have we done on those fights? You know, have we actually made any progress fighting back the evil? Maybe we're nowhere near as strong as we think we are on some of these things. And, and what about yourself and, and a few of us personally? How, you know, how well are we really doing fighting against alcoholism? How well are we really doing fighting against depression? How, how well are we really doing fighting against isolation? Or are we all sitting alone all the time? How well are, are we really doing fighting against the, the immorality that, is, that we see? How, how well are we really doing fighting against bitterness? Hasn't it often won the battle already? Maybe we are way more alone in this fight than we think we are. Right? See, now, we, we would love to say, yeah, I've got the strength on my own to, to do this. And, and yet, don't we have to look at the evidence and say, maybe we're not doing as well as we think we should be or we'd like to be? Maybe we're more alone than we think we are. Maybe we really have been abandoned. Until... Until, as this lesson says, you know, until we can admit that we are fighting alone, we're never going to get somebody to be with us. That's what Michael wants you and I to, to see. Christmas only starts to count if you can admit we've been trying to carry out the fight on our own, and we're not doing so hot. And yet, Micah can say, when you can say, we're not doing so hot, we're not making such progress ourselves, then, then Israel will be abandoned until when? Until she bears a son, and he will shepherd the flock. See, the father let the son go. The father became alone so that you and I could have somebody, so we're not alone. Right? The son left his father alone, so we were, we were no longer alone. And he became that new kind of conqueror, the new kind of warrior to fight with us and to defeat our enemies. He did, like we said before, the thing that should have never really been done in an ancient siege. Right? In an ancient siege, the way to beat the siege was to get an ally to come from the outside and to fight against the enemies. And yet God said, I'm going to let myself be alone, and I'm going to send my son to be with you, and he's going to fight from the from the outside in. He comes as this different kind of shepherd. He's come so that you will never be alone in your battle. Right? Now, that's what Micah wants us to, to see here. 
is that he is a, a shepherd king. We could have a, a king that rules over us, and there are plenty of religions that promise that. And in fact, God is, is in some sense a king who rules over us, right? But maybe Islam is the epitome of that kind of a religion, where, where you have a God who rules over you and says, follow and obey. And, and we could have a God who serves us. That's what modern, secular, American Westernism offers us. It says money and sex and idols and family. All these things are here just to serve you, to make you happy, and to make your life better. Christianity, Christmas says, no, God has come to serve, to rule with you, to be your shepherd who will walk alongside you and be with you as you head into battle. And do you have that shepherd walking with you? If you have the king who has left his father alone, if you can accept that he left his father so that you can have him, then he's fighting with you. He is alongside you. He is with you as you head into every battle, wherever you face evil. Because that's how, what God wants us to be doing. Did you see how this section ends? We get to join in the battle. The section ends where it says, We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. Did you see that? It says, We will raise against them seven shepherds. So God has said, it basically here, if I send my shepherd and you believe that the shepherd is with you, then you're going to step into the fight and raise up your own shepherds to fight against the enemies. You can be those commanders, those shepherds, to lead the fight against the evil that surrounds us. C.S. Lewis helpfully put it one time for us that, you know, you and I, we are fighting in in enemy-occupied territory. The way for us to perceive the battle that we get to be part of is not like it's, it's two sides in a massive global war, but rather we are fighting in a, a civil war where we are standing arm to arm, shoulder to shoulder, probably with our, our brothers and our sisters and our cousins and our nieces and our neighbors and all of these people that we love dearly, but somehow they've gotten on the other side. Right? If you've ever read the, the histories of the Civil War, if you've ever looked at the histories of any other kind of civil disputes, you know that what ends up happening is a family gets split right in half, and, and on one side is, is somebody serving on the, 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 the supposed good side, and on the other side is somebody supposedly serving on the, the bad side. Right? They're fighting arm to arm. And the way to get out of that, the way to work through that is, is to be the shepherd the commander, the fighter, who offers more than just a sword and violence of destruction, but also comes with the forgiveness. Isn't that what Jesus has given to us as our great weapon? Jesus not only comes in the manger, but he says to you, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Right? You have the keys to forgive. You have the weapon, the tool to, to forgive, and that is the the weapon that you can use against all of your enemies. That's the one great thing that you get to carry with you. you know, I think this year, one of the coolest times I got to, uh, got to preach one weekend, we were talking about forgiveness that week, and it just so happened that a guy was visiting who, uh, who, who needed some forgiveness in his life. You know? And he comes back to me the, the week after that, and he says, 
hey, can we talk about that thing some more? Because it was a weapon now in his life to fight against the evil, the, the, the problems that he had so long faced. When you embrace Christmas with all that it means, then you've got that true shepherd who equips you with the best weapon to fight that evil. You know, you and I, we've got the, the very best kingdom to live in. Uh, there was a, a British man, an English man, named Malcolm Muggeridge. How's that for a name, huh? I had to practice that a couple times because it's just a tough name, Muggeridge, Muggeridge. Uh, he, he converted to Christianity in his 40s, and he's an interesting guy because he, he was converted to Christianity not so much because uh, he, of the, seeing it was historically accurate or because uh, he saw how beautiful and wonderful it was, he was very interested in politics. And so here's his picture of, of the world in the early 1900s, and, and it kind of gives you a hint of why he converted. He says, you know, in one lifetime, I've seen my own country, the English country, ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what's a great song that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier yet. He said, I've heard a crazy Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of the German Reich that would last for a thousand years. I've heard an Italian clown announce that he would restart the calendar with his, with his rise to power. And I've heard of a mur murderous Russian acclaimed by the elite to be wiser than Solomon. I've seen America more wealthy and in terms of military weapons more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that Americans could say that they're like a Julius Caesar all in one time, and all gone with the wind. England, now part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with bankruptcy and tearing apart. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the very kingdom he helped to found. And America, haunted by fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways rowing and the smog settling. Behind the debris of all of these solemn supermen, these self-styled imperial diplomats, diplomats, there stands the gigantic figure of one, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone all mankind may still have peace. With Christmas, friends, you, I, he will lead the way, and we can conquer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you force us to see that very often when we try to fight against so much of the evil in the world, uh, because we would love to see peace, that, that we're standing alone. Uh, we've been understandably abandoned, perhaps because we're in the wrong fight, or perhaps because we're fighting with the wrong tools and in the wrong way. We humbly ask for your forgiveness. And we ask you to send the Savior to us once again this Christmas. Bestow on him, as uh, on us, this great gift of peace, that we might engage in the fight that you put before us, the right fight against evil. And so, with his uh, assistance at our side, win the day. We pray for this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our born in the manger. Amen.